Hi, this is Claudio Giuliano from Innoges Capital. We are fortunate to have uh, Bill Brody here with us today. Bill has been a great coach for the entire Innoges family on matters related to medical device. Bill has an impressive uh, uh, background. He has been uh, president of the Salk Institute. He has been trained as a physician and an engineer. has been four times entrepreneur, served 12 years as president of the Johns Hopkins University, and is a recognized U.S. national figure in efforts to encourage innovation and investments in uh, basic research and education. Thank you, Bill, for being here with us today. Can we ask you to please uh, tell uh, people who are listening about uh, you know, your story, how you started uh, in, uh, in the medical field and in the entrepreneurial field? Sure. And I'll begin my story by saying we have, a say, we have a saying that in order to avoid making mistakes, you need to have wisdom. But the question is, how do you get wisdom? It's by making mistakes. So I've made more than my share of mistakes, but people only see when things go right. They don't necessarily know all the steps that went before that. I grew up in uh, a small town in California, in the center of California, not where you think of San Francisco or Los Angeles, and always wanted to be a doctor and an engineer before biomedical engineering existed. And I ended up going across the country to Massachusetts Institute of Technology and majored in electrical engineering and computer science and finished with a bachelor's and master's degree. And then I went to medical school at Stanford. And the reason I chose Stanford is because the engineering school was very close to the medical school and uh, the dean of the medical school said I could enroll in the engineering school at the same time and so I ended up getting my PhD in electrical engineering and my MD and worked in the field of medical imaging and ultimately I became following training in cardiovascular surgery and radiology a professor of radiology and electrical engineering at Stanford but when I was uh, finishing medical school I started a my first company, a classmate of mine uh, from medical school and I came up with an idea to build a monitor to display electrocardiograms uh, on CRTs in the, emergen- in the uh, ICU and it was the first uh, such monitor that used digital technology rather than analog technology. So we started this company and made a very nice looking product and it went nowhere and the company went out of business because we had no idea how to raise money and we had no idea how to market. We just put in our own funds and our own time to to build this device. And that was the end of my entrepreneurial career. And then some years later, in 1977, I was on the faculty at Stanford and became a professor in radiology and electrical engineering and did a lot of work in imaging technology. And venture capitalists would call me up and say, Bill, we're looking at a company that does this in cardiovascular technology, would you give us some advice? And so I would give them advice and then I didn't think very much beyond that until uh, two cardiologists that I had actually trained started a company to make angioplasty catheters and the company struggled for a while but eventually became one of the more successful companies in Silicon Valley and grew into a big company called Guidant which uh, today is one of the was one I guess it's just being acquired uh, one of the major companies in medical devices and I saw all this happening and my neighbor was uh, the person who helped start it he'd started about 20 companies in Silicon Valley and along the way I came up with an idea for using 
magnetic resonance imaging for imaging the heart and blood vessels. This is in the early days of MRI. I couldn't get any funding to support it, and I went to imaging companies like GE and Siemens and Philips and asked if they would sponsor a project in my lab at Stanford, and they said no. So over a bottle of wine with my neighbor, I was complaining that we couldn't get funding for the idea, and he said, no problem, we'll just start a company. And I said, I don't know anything about starting a company. He said, oh no, I said, I'll take care of it all. And he arranged a group of five venture capitalists to put money in and uh, rented space. I, w I had proposed to build this technology that people said was impossible. It required a different magnet technology. And some people I know wrote a paper in a journal proving that it was impossible to build this magnet. And I had no proof of concept, I just had an idea. And we raised, at that time, I think, two and a half or million dollars to build this magnet, which turned out to be a very a five-ton magnet, big, big project. And I was to stay at Stanford and just be a consultant. And they hired a CEO, and they started work on this. And after a while, the venture capitalists said, the CEO is no good, we need to get replace him. And whenever they tried to find a, somebody from the medical imaging industry, the CEO would ask engineers or physicists, would this work? And they'd say no, so they wouldn't come. So finally, in desperation, the investors came to me and asked me to take a one-year leave from Stanford to run this company. And they said, we don't want you to stay more than one year because entrepreneurs don't know how to run companies, so you just be the scientific lead to get the product going. I said, great. So Stanford gave me a leave. But one year started to two, and I went back to Stanford, and they gave me a second year leave. And then at the end of two, we had this technology developed, but now we had orders to deliver systems to University of Wisconsin and to Stanford and to Johns Hopkins. And Stanford said, we won't extend your leave anymore. You have to come back or give up your tenured professorship. So I tried to negotiate with them, and they wouldn't negotiate. So I gave up my tenured professorship and left Stanford. Wow. Uh, which was a bold move, but I had recruited all these people and I knew if I went back to Stanford that company would probably not make it. So I worked in this company, I ended up being the CEO for four years. We sold our machine to Johns Hopkins and because we didn't have FDA approval, I was com commuting back and forth to Baltimore cross country to help manage the clinical trials. And um, Hopkins tried to recruit me several times as chair of radiology and I said, I can't come because I've got this company. And then. We got FDA approval, and once we got FDA approval, I recruited a management team out of General Electric, a couple of really sharp people who knew the business. And I realized that I was fine for the science and technology, but I didn't know how to run a complicated, very complicated manufacturing business. So um, I recruited these people, and I wasn't sure what I was going to do, and Hopkins called me back yet again and said, please come and do this. So I went to Johns Hopkins, and I was back in academia. The company lasted about 11 years, uh, eventually got sold to GE. It was a successful product, but it wasn't a financial success. So from my point of view, it was a failure, although the products, some of the systems are still out there many years later. I sat down after that, and I made a list of things to be successful in a startup. All, most of it has to do with reducing the amount of money that you need to raise and increasing the time or, and decreasing the time in which you get revenues because the shorter you get revenues and the shorter amount of capital you get in the more probability you'll have a return on investment for your for the venture capital people and for myself and the, and the people in the company so anyway I went to Johns Hopkins and became chair of radiology and I 
described a series of rules for medical devices that are probably too complicated to explain now. Actually, they're not too complicated, but they have to do with keeping it simple, not a complex development task. Building a five-ton magnet and selling machines that cost a million dollars a piece is a very tough road to hoe for a startup. You could be successful, but the odds of being successful are much lower. We came up with a device for breast biopsy, which was minimally invasive at a time when the standard of care was a surgical procedure under anesthesia for a biopsy if you had a lump in your breast. And we were able to get FDA approval very quickly. We were able to get reimbursement for it. We were able to uh, be the first mover. And we had what's called a recurring revenue stream. So the needle was disposable. So every time you sold it to one customer, they would continue to buy product. Because for small companies, it's very expensive to distribute and market. And so you don't want to have to keep selling the product uh, multiple times. You just want to sell it once to a site, and then they'll continue to buy the product. Anyway, the company went public and eventually got bought by Johnson & Johnson, so it was very successful. And the interesting thing, it was a much easier company than the MRI company because it didn't deal with multiple technologies, it didn't require raising huge amounts of money, and so I concluded that startups have what I call laws of physics, which you can violate laws of physics but you can't violate them consistently. And for startups, you can violate the laws of startups or the laws of physics for startups, but your probability of success goes way down. And so if you want to improve your odds and decrease your risk, you might as well try to obey the laws of physics for startups. So that's sort of what happened along the way. I took a wrong turn and became president of Johns Hopkins University for 13 years, which is a job I really loved. Um, so the curious thing is I spent most of my career in big academic institutions, but my heart is very much aligned with being with startups. The great thing about a startup is if you go away for a week or even three days and you come back, it's completely changed. It just moves very quickly. The one thing I discovered when I went from uh, Stanford to Johns Hopkins was how important the culture of the community is for fertilizing startups because in California most people are not from California so they don't have relatives they don't have parents and grandparents who look at what they do and say that's too risky you shouldn't do that you need to take a job with a big company uh, you won't get fired and so forth but Silicon Valley there's nobody there to monitor what you do and so people do crazy things crazy good things and sometimes crazy bad things you're allowed to take risk. It's both personal risk, but also invest or develop a company that has a risk of failure. And if the company fails, it's not a badge of failure. It's in a way, it's a, it, it's a badge of honor. If As long as you don't stop and you start another one and you learn from your failure. So in some ways, I had several failed companies, but I like to think that I at least learned something from it and went to the next one with it, armed with that knowledge. When I went to, to Baltimore and Johns Hopkins, Baltimore is a very conservative community. Many people were born in Baltimore. Their parents were born in Baltimore. Their grandparents were born in Baltimore. The big companies were General Motors and U.S. Steel. It was a very stable community. Of course, that all changed when manufacturing jobs were lost and the steel industry tanked. But during that time, people were, were not able to assume risk, whether risk of the company or risk of personal failure, because you would be looked on as shame, with some shame. You know, well, you, your company didn't make it. Now, why don't you go work for General Electric? 
you know, like I told you to. Today, Baltimore has changed a lot, and there are a lot of startup companies coming out of Baltimore. But back in 1987, when I started, it wasn't considered uh, a good thing to do a startup. And even within the university, if you were doing a startup, that was looked on by your colleagues as, as dirtying your hands in commerce. And so there was a real bias against doing uh, doing entrepreneurial ventures. Was it was considered to be dishonorable. Dishonorable, to... right? <laughs> yeah. Right? So if, for example, you if you needed a loan to buy a car or a house or something, and in California, when you go to get the loan, that you had to fill out a form and it said, you know, where do you work? How long has the company been in business? So. If you work for General Electric and the company's been in business for 100 years, that was very safe, thought, they thought. But if you were with a startup and you said it's been in business six months, in Baltimore, they wouldn't give you a loan. In Silicon Valley, they would say, okay, who are the investors? And if you had good venture capital firms backing you, they'd say, fine. You know? it's, so it's a whole different, you know, if the company went out of business and your, your spouse was talking to the neighbor spouse, and they'd say, what's Bill doing? Oh, his company went out of business. Oh, so which one, what's he going to do next? Which one is he going to do next? But in Baltimore, if that happens, you say, oh my gosh, this is terrible. What, what is he going to do? What are you going to do? So the culture is really important to framing um, how companies get started. And the idea that you could do something that wouldn't, that wouldn't work and might go out of business is not something that hangs with you for the rest of your life as a, as a, you know, just like going bankrupt is, you know, people say, oh, he went bankrupt. Well, yeah, but that's what, you know, the company tried and did it. I think it's not that you, you know, you went and played golf every day instead of coming to the office. You work really hard. And in fact, the hardest thing I've ever done is startups. Harder than cardiac surgery or anything in medicine. If you run out of money, you run, you're, you're dead. You, you have no... No recourse. And you're responsible for all these people, whether it's two people or 50 people in the company, you're responsible in some way for them having their livelihood. Um, you know, it's interesting what you describe as the old Baltimore mentality is pretty much what uh, many people in Italy would refer to our own mentality here. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, if you go bankrupt, oh my God, what's happened? That's bad. Yeah. But the good news, I guess, is, uh, is that that can be reversed, right? Right. So what you need to do is to tell stories of entrepreneurs and how they've been successful and what they've created with time. So what happens in places like Silicon Valley or in Minnesota in the middle of the U.S. is that you have usually a company that gets started that becomes very successful. In the case of Silicon Valley, you had Hewlett Packard and then you had Intel. And as that company grows, a lot of the people who were there early in the company say, this company is too big, I don't like working for a big company, and they leave and then start new companies. So you can trace, it's just like a family tree. You can look at the founders of Intel, who actually started two companies before that, and every time you know they, they start a company, then there are people that, that they recruited end up going to start another company. And the same thing in Minnesota, the first company was Medtronic, which came out of a cardiac surgery lab with a, an engineer who had to design a, the first pacemaker. And Medtronic has probably spun off 100 companies, either directly or indirectly. So it helps to have an anchor, we call an anchor tenant, you know, that uh, really spins off other people. But you have to start somewhere, and so... Yeah, and, and, and I guess in Italy, we, we had uh, too few cases like that, but we did have some, like, yeah. you know, 
the, the management school out of Olivetti was a great management school. Yeah. Lots of entrepreneurs and great managers throughout the world come from that school. More recently, I mean, the Andrea Venturelli started this uh, cardiovascular uh, startup in, in Brescia, Invatec, which was then sold to Medtronic. And so, so many good managers and uh, startup people are coming from yeah, that experience. That, right. So I guess, you know, uh, we need to just get a few more of them. And you need to successful. tell stories, you need to go to the university, because the entrepreneurs are going to come out of the university, by and large, or they're going to come from a university to a company like Invitec, and then, you know, they'll spin out of there. So you have to start, because entrepreneurs, by and large, are young people, because they can afford to take the risk. You know, once I had children and college and a house and all the trappings of life, you're less willing to take that kind of financial risk of because in a startup, typically, you work for not much money in exchange for equity. We call it sweat equity. And that's how you gain tremendous net worth. You, you can't do that later in life. You, it's really harder, much harder to do. And you're not as hungry. Hunger and fear of failure drive a lot of people to success more than you know, the thought of you know, being a successful entrepreneur. It's, oh my god, what do I do if we fail? I'm not going to fail. You know, and it may fail, but you know they work. They're willing to work. You know, 18 hours a day, eight, seven, and they're eight, eight days a week to to try to reduce the, the risk of failure. And back to university. I mean, when when we hear your story, we say, "Wow, you know, you you, you have been uh, a president of, a, of an important university, a rectorate." We, we would say here. Yeah. But you were an entrepreneur. You were a physician. You were an engineer. But. Uh, you, you were also an entrepreneur before becoming a, a, a president of a university. So, you know, there are very few presidents of universities in Europe, I guess, that right. uh, have an entrepreneurial background. I mean, uh, how common is that? <laughs> Not <laughs> super well. The, uh, the president of Stanford, John Hennessy, had his company. Right, he was an entrepreneur himself. Yeah, he was an entrepreneur. So there, but, there, there but, is a but there are But there aren't too many. There are <laughs> not too many because most come from a very traditional academic discipline. They're usually not engineering or medicine. But what, what I said was when I first went to Stanford, if you sneezed, you know, had a cough and you sneezed in the hallway, somebody would, a medical student or a postdoc in the lab would clone the virus, would isolate and clone the virus. A business school student from Stanford Business School would be walking the hall and he would quickly or she would quickly write a business plan and there'd be a venture capitalist out in the parking lot just waiting to fund the company. When I first went to Johns Hopkins 20 years later, if you sneezed, you had the cough and you sneezed at Hopkins, the postdoc would clone the virus and you would write a grant from the National Institutes of Health to do research and then you write a paper. So the, the culture was very different. But at the beginning, most of the entrepreneurs were not from medicine. They were from engineering or business school. But over time, there is a tremendous number of entre entrepreneurs coming out of the medical school. And things can change. I mean, John Hopkins today is considered one of the best examples of technology transfer. Now, today. Now, right? Right. But it took a long time. I went through, when I was there, four 
different technology transfer officers to find the right person that could do that. And, and also it was a question of time. A lot of it is educating the faculty about the importance of writing patents and thinking about how to commercialize. Not that they would necessarily. Most faculty are not going to start companies. They're not going to, you know, leave the university to run a company. What they are going to do, though, is they're going to come up with inventions that when licensed could provide some revenue to the university and them, but also would would allow a company to be started. Stanford and, Uni- and MIT are sort of the exceptions in that everybody seems to be involved in companies, but at most places, most of the faculty are not, but they'll still license ideas and they might get revenue out of it and certainly companies will get started. Any suggestion for uh, medtech students, uh, you know, physician who wants to start a company in Europe? Well, if you want to start a company, we have a saying in medicine, which is a little scary if you're a patient, about doing procedures. It says, see one, do one, then teach one. <laughs> so if you're a patient, you're not necessarily want to be the experiment on which you, you do the one and, and teach the one. But, <laughs> After seeing one. Yeah, but... But it's the same thing for startups. I mean, you can go to business school and take courses, or Stanford has this fabulous biodesign course. Most of it is just being, if you're, if you're in an area where there are startups, try to get involved with a startup or watch. I mean, in my case, I, you know, watch the startup from going, from ill-formed idea of a new catheter for angioplasty to a group of people that their FDA person had been a lab tech in my department, their marketing person was somebody who, an engineer who worked in the catheterization lab. I mean, it was not a sophisticated team, but they had a good idea, and eventually they brought in a CEO who could organize all that and manufacture, and then the company just took off. So you, and you watch that and you say, wow, this is pretty amazing. You don't realize that the pretty amazing ones are the exception. Football, uh, you have to have a lot of shots on goal in order to score. And so in startups, that's why if you, you know, you do a couple and they don't work, you just keep going and eventually there will be a successful one. We always, history is always written about the people who won the war and it's always written in retrospect and, and it seems obvious why somebody defeated another you know another army but before the war took place it's not at all clear you know same thing with a football game you write the results of the game and it was clear that you know Firenze didn't play up to their expectation and because but when you started you know everybody was saying Firenze is is going to be the victor. So, and the same thing with technology. The Apple iPhone or the Apple iPad or iPod were great successes, but the idea that you would put all your music on a little portable device didn't seem like a great idea. But in retrospect, it was obvious what a great idea that was. you know, Steve Jobs was a genius, and he, he was in a way. But there were also things that Steve Jobs did that were terrible failures. And people just kind of forget about the Apple Lisa or the first Macintosh um, or the Newton, which I think he didn't do, but Apple did. So we always look at this. So you look at Facebook or Google or any of those big companies, you say, wow, that's, that's amazing. But they're the exceptions. But still, there are a lot of good companies that do very well and do well for the entrepreneurs that are not as visible as Facebook. I mean, they may get acquired and their name disappears, but you know, a lot of people did well and society benefits. Well, thank you so much. Great to have you here, Bill. My pleasure. Great visit. Thank you.